a while back, Hamgran received a postcard set up, sent out by a Tibetan group. It's kind of nice to get these things in the mail. It wasn't promoting anything, wasn't selling anything. It just says, and I'm guessing this is uh, the teacher of this Tibetan group. We cling to permanence even when impermanent, even when the impermanent nature of things is crystal clear. We pro- proclaim our youth even when we are standing at the entrance to the city of old age. Let all living beings who, like me, hang on to these delusions be blessed with the understanding of impermanence at the very core of their being. One of the things I'd like to talk about tonight, and we'll have time for a group discussion, feel free to uh, bring up ideas as I'm talking if they seem relevant, but just talking or investigating how impermanence is a gateway to insight and to liberating insight, how reflecting on impermanence breaks open our heart to the liberating experience of compassion and wisdom. Sharon Salzberg says in her book, Loving Kindness, equanimity is spacious stillness of the mind, a radiant calm that allows us to be present, to be present fully with all the different changing experiences that constitute our world and our lives. So last week, again, um, we ended by, or not ended, but we brought up, it was brought up over and over again, just this investigation or this interest in the birth and cessation of meaning in the mind. And like even today, we have had so many meaningful experiences or experiences that had personal meaning, you know, almost constantly, but it wasn't the same meaning, right? There's constantly different Life was presenting experiences that had different meaning. So meaning was coming and going all day long. And this is a really interesting place of investigation because the sense of self, this, what the Buddha calls, you know, basic ignorance, uh, where the mind is imputing a separate permanent sense of self, is in a sense built on this consistency of meaning. But when we actually directly are are observing how meaning is this very slippery, changing thing, the meaning the mind is giving to experience, it becomes easier and easier to go beyond any fixed sense of self. Because we assume that what makes us so certain about the fixed sense of self is that continuity of meaning. But there isn't really continuity of meaning. So sutta, over and over again, the seeds all get planted, over and over, the rain god sprinkles rain, over and over, the farmer farms the field, over and over, the food grows in the realm, over and over, beggars do their begging, over and over, the givers give out gifts, over and over, the giver who has given, over and over, goes to a better place. Over and over, she tires and she struggles. Over and over, the fool goes to the womb. Over and over, he's born and he dies. Over and over, they bear him to his grave. But one whose wisdom is wide as the earth, 
is not born over and over, for she's gained the path of not becoming over again. We can just imagine, you know, there are so many arisings and ceasings of meaning, of experience. And just to at least hold that possibility that with cessation there can be equanimity. Non-contention with change. Equanimity with both the arising and the cessation. And to notice what that does, what happens when there's non-contention or equanimity with arising and ceasing. It's like you can even observe this with something simple like the breath. And as the breath is going out, have to be really okay with the breath, not anticipating the in-breath, not trying to manage the out-breath as it's going, ending, ceasing. So in that moment, as the out-breath ceases, but before the in-breath begins, it's a very interesting experience if the mind is relating with equanimity. Well, it's the same thing with bigger events, like something like the forest retreat, for some of you, you know, it ended yesterday. At any moment where that felt like an ending, you know, driving out of the driveway or... And to meet that poignant experience with equanimity, non-clinging, non-attachment, non-sort of... Like the mind not compelled to make meaning, not afraid of the arising of meaning, but not compelled to make meaning out of the cessation, but just letting it completely end. And we can, you know, get to the end of the ice cream tonight or the end of the TV program or the end of the day as we're crawling into bed and just appreciating the naturalness of cessation and how liberating it is not to have to make anything out of it, but just to let it be that. And if life chooses to arise again, then let it arise again. But we're not attached or leaning into the next arising. But on the other hand, we're not afraid of the next arising, whatever that might be. So, especially as we move into looking more specifically at death, which clearly has a, an archetypal charge for us. Um... It like really triggers a lot of emotion. And so it would be good to take these next two weeks and in all the little ways we can be uh, exploring this possibility of non-contention with change and especially with cessation. really fascinated by, you know, the opposite of this, in a sense, is this fascination with becoming. So there is this process, life, you know, is a process, a changing process, and and we like part of that, you know, we like the arising piece, the becoming piece. We can be, most of us can be endlessly fascinated by the possibilities of becoming. I've been spending a lot of time uh, with my dad lately and thinking about him a lot and, you know, 
uh, just struggling with some medical issues, pretty serious medical issues. And it's just interesting with somebody, older person, uh, so much going on. But uh, I, I just noticed, like in my mind, it's like it just keeps wanting to go to cessation. And I was like, oh, this is going to end soon. And I don't, I don't, I, when I really think about it, I realize I don't really know it's going to end soon at all. It's not actually clear at all. But I just notice that where my mind goes, and what I notice his mind goes is about becoming, you know. I mean, he, he's not like that deluded. I'm not saying he's deluded at all. But, uh, just, uh, like what's next? You know, the next meal, the next thing he has to deal with, the next choice that needs to be made where he's going to go next, live next. So it's just a really interesting time between kind of on a heart level, an emotional level, it's about cessation for me. But it's not just him. So much of what the family's involved with is becoming, like the the arising, this new situation that we have to deal with and plan for and project out and... And I find it, I find it's confusing a little bit. And, and I noticed, like, with both the arising and the interest in becoming, and, you know, at least in my case, sort of attachment to cessation, I noticed that what's interesting is the attachment to both. So it's not like one is better than the other or you're more of a Buddhist if you're into cessation and you're more deluded if you're into arising. I don't think it's that way at all. I think it's it's really looking at both and teasing out the attachment to either one, whatever, wherever we see the attachment, basically. And to begin to experience the arisings and ceasings in our life as just natural, unavoidable events. You know, there's always arising and ceasing. One always is following the other. So the liberation the Buddha points to isn't like, finally we get cessation and then we're done. Although that's sometimes how it seems and, you know, how you can interpret some of the teachings. But I think it's much more about not being, not having a personal agenda around the arisings and ceasings in our lives. Seeing it everywhere because that characterizes life or our experience more than anything, this arising and ceasing. It's actually a very useful frame to help us get close to life. On any level, microscopic, you know, when we're in a very still meditation and in a way microscopically we're aware of the body in that really subtle way and we're seeing that microscopic, subtle arising and ceasing of sensation so much arising and ceasing that it's almost like there's not anything what we would normally call physical or real there because the mind is seeing the arising and ceasing and because that is a process of change there really isn't anything before it becomes something it's already on the way to becoming something else and people have this experience of the body even people in the intro class come up to me and say things like, just recently said things like, you know, it's like, uh, I feel like I'm in a free fall. I feel like there's nothing there. And it's because they're having uh, experience, having an understanding of the body 
has changed, as opposed to the concept we have the bo- of the body as muscle and bone and something solid, and maybe it's a little bigger than it used to be or a little smaller than it used to be, but it's basically the same thing, and it's real and it's solid and it's hard, and it has this seemingly permanent existence. But that's the body, that's the experience of the body under the strong influence of the mind's conception or thoughts about the body. I read this, I think, uh, maybe the first or second week, this sutta, immeasurable is this onflow, the earliest point cannot be known, as beings obscured by ignorance and tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. So obscured by ignorance and tied to craving. This is this um, attachment to either cessation or becoming, attachment to that this movement of life refers to something permanent or solid, separate. And that's the craving and the ignorance. And that's what keeps us moving on and on. Because life is moving on, and the attachment to it, it's like we're looking for something that life isn't delivering. So there's what gets born out of that is a hunger. It's like we believe there is this permanent sense, safe sense, but life never delivers it, so there's an ongoing hunger for it, and that ongoing hunger is what propels the mind into the next moment. That's why I said earlier, a few minutes ago, that it's really interesting when we explore equanimity with cessation, or equanimity with arising, non-contention with what comes and goes. Whether we're just out in the world and somebody throws a curveball and says, oh, it's not going to happen the way we said it was going to happen, it's going to be this way. And then, like, what does equanimity or non-contention look like with that change? There was this expectation, and now this is the way it's going to be. Or, you know, we wake up and there's a headache, or there's a, a canker sore in our mouth, or there's a pimple on our face, or there's, you know, strain in the knee that wasn't there before. And now, now there's that change. So what does non-contention look like with that? Or something good happens to us. And then this discourse goes on, For a very long time indeed, have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, and swelled the charnel grounds? It has surely been long enough to become disenchanted, long enough to become disengaged, long enough to become free from all formations. Right? All becomings. That's another, you know, becoming is part of these formations. It's out of these formations that arises a sense of becoming. Formations include the intention, you know, these these uh, inclinations of the mind. Formations are so impermanent. Formations are so unstable. Formations are so disappointing, unsatisfactory. The Buddha then uttered, uttered this verse, how impermanent formations are. Their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. I think this is Andy Olensky's edition, abandoning the, abandoning the habit to go there. 
Happiness comes from calming them. This is what we've been chanting at the end. It's here in the sutta, and then gets repeated in the Dhammapada, the collection of verses, and then became, over time, a traditional chant at funerals for Buddhists. How impermanent formations are. Their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. A while back, somebody sent me uh, some quotes that James Perez used at uh, used James Perez used at a talk he gave in Madison, Wisconsin, about uh, five years ago. This is a poem by Joyce Wellwood. And it just seems to me a really mature, grounded way to relate to impermanence. And I, I like it a lot. It goes like this. I think it's, I think it's called, I'm not sure if this is the website they got it from. Uh, looks like it's called The Dakini Speaks. Dakini is a, a feminine expression of wisdom in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her companion exquisitely precise, I'm sorry, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Uh, Joyce Wellwood, and it's the Dakini Speaks. I'll put it up on the website so people can get it and send an email out with it. Assuming it still can be found. I, I don't know if I'll type it out, but if I don't find it easily, then uh, maybe somebody can send it to me who finds it or is willing to type it out. They can type it out and get it out to the whole group. And there's been, this teaching has been around for a long time. I remember a long time ago there was a book, uh, I studied this, uh, great Indian saint, Swami Shivananda, who died, I think, in 1964. And he had several disciples, Indian disciples, who then came to the West. And one of them, who came to the States and Japan and a lot, taught a lot in South Africa, was an Indian man named Swami Ventet, Ventet Tessa Kananda, Ventessa Kananda. And he had a book 
that I really liked a lot. And uh, in it, he said, where there is hope, there is fear. And it's like, this like this is the energy of becoming. Like we hope, we have, and we get this in practice too. Like I'm going to get my act together, and I'm going to get my samadhi together, and I'm going to get this wisdom together. And it's totally understandable, and I don't think we're going to avoid that. But we want to be on the lookout for this maturing, this making peace with imperfection, making peace with impermanence. Like that's actually the getting it together, is this maturing of insight where we are okay with the unknowing, the unformed. We're okay with not being able to get it all together. One of the nice things about getting to know people we assume are mature practitioners is we see that on a personality level, personality level they don't have it all together. It is so reassuring. Because you can notice, hopefully, if they're really a mature practitioner, you'll notice two things. On a personality level, they don't have it all together. And then there's this sort of strange and even unnerving, like they're okay with it. <laughs> they're okay not having it all together. And in a way, you know, it's like, well, that maybe that's what having it all together is all about. Like, being okay not having it all together, having an imperfect life, an imperfect personality. doesn't mean that, you know, they're necessarily okay with harming other beings. But when they do harm other beings, because they don't have it all together, they don't create, you know, or we don't, when, in our wiser moments, we don't create unnecessary suffering around, around those mistakes that we make in life. Remember, not having hope isn't the same as despair. It's like, it's actually a relief not to need hope in life. Because we don't necessarily see this, but hope is a kind of violence to the present moment. It's a, some claim that this isn't enough. This is not okay. This isn't safe. This moment. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book again. As we begin to understand this Dhamma, she doesn't have the word, she just says, as we begin to understand this, but she's really in this section talking about this way that it is. She goes on, we move from a mode of struggling to control what comes into our lives into a mode of simply wishing to truly connect with what is. This is a radical shift in worldview. So again, as we begin to understand this, we move from a mode of struggling to control what comes into our life into a mode of simply wishing to truly connect with what is. This is a radical shift in worldview. So the only thing we really need, of course, is to be liberated from ignorance. You know, it's this shift that we're interested in. That's all we need. And one of the things that provokes this shift or this insight is what I was mentioning, this equanimity or non-contention with the arising and with the ceasing, with the, like, 
every time. I mean, there's just so many ways my mind can construct an entrancing becoming, whatever it might be. Like even, I'm. some of you know I'm leaving on Thursday to teach at IMS. I don't even have to do that much teaching. You know, there's three teachers there for the nine-day retreat. But there's a lot like, I'd like to become the person who's prepared. <laughs> and the time is rapidly disappearing in my life. And, uh, you know, so I could just see that. And, like, I can either believe that hope to be the one who's prepared, or I can have, in moments, I do have a non-contention, an equanimity with that arising. Well, that's just how it is. I mean, it is how it is, and it will be how it will be. And um, allowing my heart to get all worked up isn't going to help. I know. I mean, one of the things mindfulness teaches us is we've seen so many times how that is just pain. That's all it is. We get wrapped up, we get tied up, and it's just suffering. It's just stress. It doesn't make us get the work done that needs to get done or we think needs to get done. It just wraps the heart up in a knot. You can even see it, especially when you're working with cessation and equanimity with cessation. It's really a little death, equanimity with dying. There's a real sense of grieving that loss. Some of you know, uh, his name is Jack Engler. I heard him speak once at IMS. He was actually one of the early teachers in the 70s. Not too much, but a little bit. And he was a real student of Deepama in India. Jack Engler, yeah. Um, and um, he's a psychologist. But I think when he got his, I think, a psychology degree at Harvard after practicing in India back in the early 70s, um, he did his dissertation on this practice, this path of awakening. I don't know if he used Buddhist terms or not, but he, he described it as a grieving process. So that equanimity with cessation and the equanimity with becoming means we have to grieve the meaning we normally give to becoming to arisings, and the meaning we normally give to cessation. We actually have to let it touch the heart. Because by being equanimous, we're not the one who's going to become, and we're not the one who's going to lose. We're, so we're grieving being the one who loses what we usually imagine we're going to lose, and being the one who's going to become what we imagine we're going to become. So we have to let go of all that. So like in that example of becoming the one who's prepared, in my case, you know, like, it's, I have to actually grieve the loss of that. Because now, the truth is I don't know, like, how it's going to go. And whether I'll be prepared. I don't know. I have to grieve the loss of the idea of being the one who's prepared. Or if we're, you know, really attached to some cessation, something getting done with, being done with, being over, we have to grieve the loss of being that person. 
Because otherwise, the attachment to cessation or the attachment to becoming just propels us into the future, that hunger that I was talking about earlier. That's what we can let cease. This is from that now almost ancient book that Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein wrote, I think maybe the late 70s, early 80s, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. It's quite good. In, the, in that section on the three characteristics, they talk about impermanence. Out of, our, out of the misconception that it is possible, we try to make things solid and secure. We create the illusion of stability in our minds. I'm this sort of person. These are my opinions. This, my body is like this. I'm going to live in this way and do that thing. It's like the winding, it's like winding our watch on the way to the gallows. We live as if we could continue this way forever. But those are the stories we make up to give ourselves something to hold on to. The raw experience of our lives, the basic stuff, is constant change. Changing sights, sounds, changing smells, changing tastes, changing sensations, and changing thoughts. When we look, is there anything else? We find it difficult to accept the truth of impermanence. If we would stop and look carefully, we would see that it is the very nature of our lives. We cannot stop the body from constant change, and we cannot stop the mind from constant change. When we want things to be other than the way they are, we are bound to be frustrated. And then at the end, they say at the end of the section, Instead of creating solid things, solid relations, a solid, unchanging world to try to hold on to, we can let go and open to the actual truth of each changing moment. This is learning to live by what Alan Watts calls the wisdom of insecurity. There's no pretending, no complacency, and no bleak grasping and groping for some secure thing that will not go away. I think in uh, one of Jack Kornfield's books, might be the path with heart. I forget which one it's in. He's cut this great line that he quotes. I'm not, I don't think it's his. Isn't it strange that we prefer the quicksand of somethingness to the firm ground of emptiness? Isn't it strange that we prefer the quicksand of somethingness to the firm ground of emptiness? Because when we open to impermanence, it's like, when we train the mind to see the impermanent, changing, ephemeral nature, then, in a way, it is our refuge. I mean, in Buddhist terms, you call it Dhamma, the way it is. But it's a refuge because we can count on it. We can count on it being that way. It doesn't surprise us anymore. Nothing surprises us because we know anything can happen any time because things are unfolding. And this unfolding, although lawful, can't be comprehended by our mind. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't can't intuit things, like how it's changing, how it's how things in our lives are unfolding. Sometimes we we do have some sense that things end up unfolding in the way we thought. But how many times? You know, and a lot of times we pretend that we thought it was going to unfold this way. I even find myself repeating that out loud, like. As if, like, oh yeah, I knew that was going to happen. But I didn't know that was going to happen. That it's like reassuring to tell myself that 
I thought that was going to happen. Where, where the truth was much more like, well, yeah, I could conceive of that ha happening, but I didn't expect it to happen. You know, I actually expected this other thing to happen. But it was within my realm of possibilities. But then when it happens, I say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Because it makes us feel safe, like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. Nothing surprises us. But the way that we're actually okay with surprises is like really recognizing that it is a surprise. Like we really don't know what's going to happen next. It's like really interesting to get in that place with another person where you're just together and you don't know what's going to happen next. And it can be very alive and you can learn to really trust it. Like it's really okay. I think that's why people like improv. And, uh, you know, both like in, in dance, I know a little bit about the dance world because of Wynn, who's a dancer and choreographer. And, you know, just, and it's funny how easy, like when you watch, how easy it is to start getting a set. So, of course, you don't really know, like, even though it's improv, they kind of know what they're doing. Like, there's certain patterns or expectations that they're falling into. But there are other moments where you really feel just energetically, it's almost a spiritual happening that nobody knows what's going to happen. And it becomes very alive and riveting for the audience and probably even more so for the performers. And then it gets, then it maybe they lose that magic and things become somewhat, even though people may not be conscious of it, it's somewhat set and predictable on some level. And this is the same with our lives, can be this very alive place when we're not afraid of the uncertainty, afraid of things being unformed or un, undefined, unknown really. Some of you know that in Buddhism there are these four perverted views or distortions of the mind where we take what is actually impermanent to be permanent, take what is actually unpleasant or painful to be pleasant, what has no self to be something that has self, so some permanent abiding substance, something that is impure for what is taking something which is actually impure to be beautiful. Impure in the sense that is ultimately unsatisfying because it's impermanent. So these are the four distortions that we live with and it, it supports like seeing things this way, uh, which I think we could just say being superficial, like being somewhat distracted, the mind, the attention not so steady, we tend to see this way. It's so hard to come to common ground without imputing a sense of permanency. Oh yeah, common ground. Like, as if this is what we remembered it. This is exactly what it was last Monday, or the last time we were here. Oh yeah, this is the Buddhist studies crowd. But this has never been like this before. But we just impute, because it makes us feel safe. We keep imputing. Like you go home and we see the people we live with, and we impute something there. So it has a solidity, makes us feel safe. Oh, I know this kind of summer evening, and it makes it recognizable. And we keep missing how life is bursting forth anew. It's like, no, it's never been this way before, and we'll never be this way again, this moment 
any aspect of this moment. How many times do we really catch that? I think it's a, a pretty rare experience. But when the mind, when samadhi is better, like that really beautiful balance, what happens is things do seem more alive and riveting because the mind is intuitively recognizing the uh, both the newness of the arising and the the sort of edge of the cessation, like before it's something that's gone. It's breathtaking. It's like in uh, Tibetan texts sometimes you'll see this word, Amaho, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, something like that. And it's usually translated, translated as, how amazing. And it's like, that's exactly, if someone were giving a Dharma talk or talking about the way it is, one of the things that comes up for us is like, how amazing that it is this way. That nature, the way it is, is this way. Ephemeral, alive with change. This is from Bhante Gunaratana's book. I know many of you have read it. Mindfulness in plain English. I really like this quote. The object of Vipassana practice is is to learn to see the truth of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness of phenomena. We think we are already doing this. We think we are doing this already, but that is an illusion. It comes from the fact that we are paying so little attention to the ongoing surge of our own life experiences that we, mu- that we might just as well be asleep. We are simply not paying enough attention to notice that we're not paying attention. It's another catch-22. And I really like, I mean, this is such a powerful way to describe this. We are simply not paying enough attention to notice that we are not paying attention. This is a great definition of ignorance, the basic problem. We're not paying enough attention to notice the harm that arises because we're not paying enough attention. It doesn't occur to us that we're not paying enough enough attention. Like even today, how many times during the day did it occur to us that we're not paying enough, enough attention? That like we're we're missing the most important thing. It just doesn't occur to us, and it's that lack of interest, that lack of sort of moving in the direction of more of a more full attention that is ignorance. It just causes so much suffering. You know, there's a nice rhythm to the Tonglin practice. Some of you know about this Tibetan practice where you you train the mind to breathe in the suffering of all beings and to give away all of your strength, all your goodness as a gift, free gift. To basically strip away any ground that you might have created for yourself and just be this conduit of compassion or love. But you can work with that like specific, more specifically with impermanence where... Like instead of breathing in specifically the suffering of living beings, you can breathe in the truth of impermanence. Wherever, you, however you see it, like you know, you hear about another one more train accident. You know, it seems like there've been a number of train accidents recently. So you just bring bring in your idea, the images you have, the thoughts that you have about how those people weren't thinking that train was going to do whatever it did. You breathe in that impermanence. And then you breathe out fearlessness, like being okay, living in a world where trains, which we take to be dependable and usually are, can do what they do sometimes. 
And then you breathe in another thing, you know, like something happened today you didn't expect, and you banged your head. So you bring in that surprise, that, and you breathe out fearlessness. You give out fearlessness to the world. So it's a way of, like, learning to, one, recognize all the ways that you did experience impermanence in your life, or just today. You practice breathing that in, and then you practice relating wisely to it, like being fearless, being accepting to all that impermanence that is there in our lives. And one way that uh, Suzuki Roshi talks about this in his book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, another one of these great classics, which came out probably in the late 60s, one of the first Dharma books I read when I got started, really had a strong impact on my mind, enough to make me want to move to the Bay Area so I could go to the San Francisco Zen Center. When I actually ended up doing that, I left my job and moved to the Bay Area and went to the San Francisco Zen Center. I was disappointed, to say the least, and never went back. (laughs) But anyway, got me going. And the book is just so great. But anyway, uh, he has a, a section on page 34 called Mind Waves. And it's quite good. And he's t- he really, I, I don't know if I have time to read it because I want to save some time for discussion. But I'll just mention, he's really talking about sometimes the mind gets narrow. You know, it gets established in a particular view or on a particular object. And he's talking about, how does he, the term he uses, like big mind maybe. Yeah, small mind, limited mind versus big mind. Big mind experiences everything within itself. Do you understand the difference between the two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. Actually, they are the same thing. But the understanding is different. Your attitude toward life, towards your life, will be different according to which understanding you have. So small mind, you know, the mind is relating to something. Big mind, the mind isn't creating meaning. So it's really interesting, just even on a conceptual, intellectual level, you know, to imagine big mind, when the mind that includes everything, then what is change? What is the relevance of impermanence to the mind that's including everything? See, impermanence is only a relevant and often scary factor when the mind has established itself in relationship, this and that. Then change becomes relevant. But when the mind is including everything then change has to be in relationship to something else, right? Change change always implies a dualistic world. So even the Buddha's teachings on impermanence is a skillful means. The Buddha isn't saying, isn't giving out some metaphysical truth. Everything is changing. He's saying, reflect on impermanence as a relative, ignorant human being. Reflect on impermanence because it's skillful. It leads to liberating insight. Because in what Suzuki Roshi calls big mind, impermanence isn't a problem. It isn't relevant, even. It's just the way that it is. And you can even, this is not somewhere far down the path. This is something you can play. Just in a normal sit where there's some samadhi, some evenness of mind, of heart, just in that evenness, 
you can notice how the mind can get established in relationship to things, to meaning, and then because of that gets thrown around by good and bad and things not being the way we want them to be, and then the mind can open up and include and accept and relax and rest with everything, and then all of a sudden the experience is of no problem anywhere. There's no problem. And then in another moment, very shortly probably, all of a sudden there seems to be the appearance of problem, and then no problem. And we want to get really fluent so that when we do end up in that world of self and the world of problems, we hold it really lightly. We're not desperate to get back to big mind because that desperation to get back to big mind brings us to small mind, limited mind. So to learn how to, when the mind is congealed around a sense of self and is in this dualistic world of good and bad, how to hold it really lightly and to be patient with it because the dissolution of the limited world happens through equanimity with it and love and kindness. That is, that's how that world dissolves, not by thinking it's the wrong world. And this is why, like in later schools, they talk about form and emptiness, nibbana and samsara, as not in different places. They really emphasize this point, because it's a skillful means. It's a good teaching to not make us... Like that. one of their criticisms of the other schools, like Theravada, or the precursor to Theravada, was that you know, people are selfishly wanting Nibbana. Let me get out of this conditioned world because it's so limiting. But of course, that's just greed and aversion. So whether, it doesn't matter what school you're in, it's just a question of whether we understand how to use the skillful means that wise people have left us to support our own awakening. So I want to leave it here so that we have some time. You might have some experiences, your own like the, the way that insight has arisen in your life in relationship to understanding impermanence in all the different ways that you can understand or recognize impermanence. And of course, any questions you might have. So what comes to mind? Experiences, your own insights that you'd like to share with the group would be nice. Mantra. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. 
Other thoughts come to mind? I have a question. Um, sometimes you confused with thoughts and questions of impermanence as to how motivation and intention like, come into play. So, like, as you were saying, like, you know, on this retreat here and you know, becoming prepared. So, are you saying that you can have, like, a not heart and at the same time still be motivated to prepare? Or no? Like, can that motivation come out of a place of loving kindness in the sense, like, and maybe, or maybe it's just like a thought that if, if I'm more prepared, then people will get more off than I mean, that's not even certain either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, where does, where does that come Yeah, and that's the, that's the fearless part of that. We have to be willing to abandon the neurotic motivations, uh, not knowing what's going to arise in their place. And we abandon them not because we know what's going to, like there's something better, like we could prepare out of compassion for all beings who are going to be on that retreat, or, or even compassion for myself so I won't be embarrassed or something like that. That could be a relatively wholesome... But I don't know what's going to arise. All I know is that um, that expectation or that attachment to being the one who's prepared or that fear of not being prepared, what I do know directly in my experience is that right now, that's a burden. And, uh, and right now, when that's released, when I allow that to cease, there's a release. And I trust that release. And I don't know what's going to happen. And that, that's scary, but, you know, over time, I've learned, and I think a lot of us could say the same thing, that we've learned to be okay with things being uncertain. And one of the things that's uncertain is whether people will like me or not, or whether I'll be seen as being a good teacher or a not good teacher. Like, can that be... Is it okay if that's unformed? Like, because actually it is unformed. And uh, can that be okay in my mind? Can this mind be okay with that being unformed? Like the trajectory of my life could take me through territory where I am a lousy teacher. I mean, that's the general consensus. Or I am this great teacher. Or I'm sort of so-so. You know, like, like any of those trajectories would... Not, not that I don't prefer one over the other, but like just seeing that any of those are possible. And, uh, you know, that this life will work with it. Whatever it is, it will just work with it. So it is scary. So it's not like, you, I don't think you can avoid the fear. It's really how the heart holds the fear. Like, is the fear actually a problem? Or maybe actually the fear is just a more honest recognition that things are uncertain. And that maybe there's a real relief, even a liberation in integrating that in our lives more honestly, more fully. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Experiences that you'd like to share? Mark? Yeah, John. Um, maybe you can clarify this for me. This is something I can tell. Maybe just a bit louder, John. Where does motivation come from if not in other words, yeah. how do you motivate yourself to do anything if you don't have some 
expectation. And, you know, and when that expectation starts to come up, all of our habit energy and conditioning, the grasping and illusion attaches to it. It's like it seems to be impossible to avoid that. Well, how about the motivation to make your comment right now? You know, where did that come from? <laughs> I like to get rid of the confusion. Yeah. It's an expectation. So, right. it's a good point because I have an expectation that if I can let go of that confusion, I feel better. Yeah. And probably, you know, mostly they're mixed. These different motivations or intentions, they're mixed. But what we can do is we can begin to to trust some aspect of those motivations which motivate motivating us into action to speak up and say something. And some of it's just coming from a, like a compassion, like wanting to take care of ourselves or wanting to understand deeply. And some motivations are less toxic than others. You know, be less toxic in the sense that they actually lead to a deepening of understanding that um, helps the mind catch the intentions that are contracting and recognize the intentions that are liberating. There's no way to avoid desire. This is why I, I like, you know, even though in a lot of Buddhist texts, desire is a translation for what is, I think, better translated as grasping or craving. So desire is, uh, I think you could say, is this life energy. The human being is always entering the moment. There's always motivation. There's always a response or an engagement. Even if trying not to engage life is its own kind of engagement. So there's no way when we're living to not be engaging, responding, acting in the world. We just are. And then the question is, like understanding what of what of that is leads to contraction, what of that is liberating. So it's not so much about motivation, because it will always be motivation. It's just understanding the motivation and the understanding of it transforms it. Like motivation that leads to things getting tight and contracted motivation that loosens everything up. And so you could call the motivation certain things like the second step of the Eightfold Path, right intention or right thought. You know, it's non-greed. Or thoughts about letting go, thoughts about renunciation, thoughts about generosity, non-hatred, you know, thoughts about kindness, thoughts about compassion. Motivations about uh, compassion, you know, and non-delusion, right? So what's non-delusion as a motivation? Well, motivations to be clear, to see clearly, to understand deeply, to be connected. So these are the motivations, you know, all the things that coming out of the wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion. Those are the motivations that are liberating. Maybe time for one more comment or thought, if, any, if there is anything. So, no class next week. Last two weeks, week, uh, say, I guess the 13th, no, the 12th and the 19th, we'll talk about death. I'll get some readings out to everybody, but please send me things that you find. And next week, Casey and Gabe will organize the talk and the uh, lead the discussion for the group, make sure the place gets closed down and opened up. And let's end by doing our Anicca chant. I don't really
really have any copies with me tonight, I don't think. And we'll chant it three times as we've been doing and then read the English as it's translated here. This is a different translation than I gave earlier in the evening. And this, the reason we, as you, most of you know, the reason we do these chants is so that over a period of time, you'll memorize some of these basic teachings and they'll just be at your fingertips. So you could just, they'll naturally come to mind at different times in your life. And uh, you can, of course, consciously bring them to mind. Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamino upatituva nirushanti te sam upasano sukho Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamino Upajituva niruchanti te sang upasamo sukho anicca vata sankara uparavayadamino upajituva niruchanti te sang upasamo sukho Impermanent, they're all component things. They arise and cease. That is their nature. They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.